Okay, hi everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I'm in a coffee shop. Now, what's it called, Mel? Melrose and Morgan. Melrose. Melrose and Morgan in Hampstead Heath. We've positioned ourselves carefully next to the washing up, so I'm going to move yeah, and speak around <laughs> this way. And I'm here with two guys from the Gaia Foundation. I wonder if you could introduce yourselves, Hal and Philippe. Um, yes, my name is Philippe. I'm French national. I've been living in the UK for 23 years now. And currently, I am in charge of a small charity that does microfinance in um, Malawi. And I'm also... Um, Director of the uh, Gaia Trustee Limited company, which is a, uh, a, a trustee of the Gaia Foundation. Oh, wonderful. And how? Uh, I have been working with Gaia for around uh, a year and a half now, uh, doing communications and advocacy work. Um, and that's really my whole my background before that is in anthropology, mm-hmm. studying anthropology. So that led me to this work. And how and I met at a night in a pub, which is where all people meet in this country as far as I can tell. It's the only way to meet anybody. But we in fact were not drinking alcohol. No. <laughs> we were uh, at an event that Gaia was involved in along with Transition and some other groups looking at ways in which we could help people to repair equipment rather than always buy new equipment. So everything from Hoover's through to computers, wasn't it? Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah, those restart projects who are doing really yeah. good work around, well, all across London, really, and trying to yeah. set up elsewhere around the world. Yeah. So, and then when I suggested to Howard, it might be nice to have a chat, he very kindly invited Philippe to agree to come along. And maybe we could also talk about, if we get time, the charity, the other work you're involved in in Malawi. Mm-hmm. But let's start with the Gaia Foundation, since yeah. that's our beginning point. Gaia is a fascinating word with a fascinating history. Some listeners may not know much about it, some people may know a lot. So I wondered if you guys could just give us a brief primer, you know, a sense of what this is. As you want. Uh, (laughs) Um, Well, Gaia uh, has a long, yeah, as you say, Toby, a very long history, and it's a cross-cultural history, so there are mentions of a Gaia, G-A-Y-I-A, in um, ancient Sanskrit cultures. Oh, really? Um, uh, Yeah, and it's related to a, a mantra, uh, the Gayatri mantra, which which stems from the Om, um, uh-huh. so the, the well, I don't know, I probably wouldn't say it right, but the resonance of the universe, the fundamental sound of the universe. I think John Lennon wrote about it. Yeah, in a popular yeah, way, probably. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, but then the Gaia that we would refer to yeah. is um, is uh, from Greek mythology, so it's the mother goddess in Greek mythology, mm-hmm. um, and obviously uh, synonymous with Mother Earth mm-hmm. in terms of her qualities as described there. Um, but the reason uh, that we are the Gaia Foundation is, is to do with James, Lo- although we're not directly affiliated with James Lovelock in any way, but his Gaia theory, which is a, a systems theory of science um, from the 1970s, uh, which has gained more and more popularity, which essentially posits the theory that uh, Earth is a, a self-regulating organism mm. in and of itself, which maintains the, the conditions for life through life. Um, and that's that's our that's at the centre of our philosophy that that belief in a, in a self-regulating earth mm-hmm. and a living planet in the truest sense of the word. Right, but I'm interested in the connection intellectually with Lovelock, but there's no copyright or trademark connection in some sense. Nobody can no. trademark Gaia. Uh, 
don't know. Probably a good question, but yeah. I, I wouldn't think so. No. Because it's mythological. Yeah, yeah. And I, as far as I know, he actually was looking for a, a name for his theory. Um, and I think it was William Golding. Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah. Who suggested Gaia theory when he was hearing about the science from James Lovelock. William Golding, the novelist, yes. wrote Lord of the Flies yes. and so on which is precisely about what happens when the self-regulation yeah. doesn't work. Yes. So he apparently, allegedly, he suggested that name to, oh, to Lovelock. Okay. And how did you both get involved? I mean, you're a trustee, is that right? The, the body that runs yeah. um, Gaia Foundation. Well, I've been... Gaia Foundation is organising evenings regularly in London uh, about different subjects. Yeah. Maybe one, one a month on average, maybe a bit less. And I've been going to these evenings for a long time, so I, I knew about the work the Gaia Foundation was doing. And then one day, I actually went to meet Liz, Liz Oskeny, the founding uh, member of Gaia Foundation. She started the, the organization with, with Ed in 1984. Wow. Uh, so 30 years ago to, uh, this year. So I'm, I, I came to, I, I wanted to meet Liz because I was interested in her work. And then we started to chat, and she realized that my in a past life, I used to be involved in an oil company. Total, you told me. Total was yeah. the name, yes, the French company. Which is state-owned still? Or? It used to be, but now it's, uh, it's private. It's private. Okay. Um, and then at the time, this we are talking five years ago here. Yeah? yeah, at the time she was looking for someone to actually dig, so to speak, into the extractive industries mm. um, because she was realizing more and more through the work that the Gaia Foundation is doing with indigenous people in Africa or South America mainly that those people were threatened increasingly by extractive industries meaning oil gas and and metals extraction gold in gold in Latin America yeah. Yeah. yeah so she was looking for someone to look into those issues and if because my own background was in oil, even though I didn't know anything about metals or, mm. or coal. Uh, still, I had this, this background about the extractive industry. So she asked me to write a report on um, what, what's happening, what's going on. Because I think at the time, the Gaia Foundation maybe didn't have a clear understanding what was going on. So it was trying to have a kind of helicopter view of, of this world. Uh, and try to understand why suddenly it seemed like wherever the Gaia Foundation was working, mm. people were increasingly threatened by extractive industries. Mm. Mm. Uh, so this I did. Um, we, I wrote a report called Pandora's Box. Pandora's Box. Pandora's Box is the name. <laughs> Actually, to be uh, accurate, it's opening Pandora's Box is the name of the report. And it is about looking at each one of these uh, extractive industries, so oil, gas, coal, uh, and metals, and trying to find out what are the main factors at play there. Mm. So just to give a quick example in mm. oil, what's the story of oil today? Well, the story is that conventional oil deposits are running out. So in order to recover oil, the industry has to use increasingly aggressive techniques in order to get the oil from the ground. So this translates into the tar sands extraction in, in Canada. Canada or the deep offshore in, Mexico, in Brazil and, 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 uh, and Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, the fracking, which is used mainly for natural gas, but also for oil. Um, so this was made, 
the theme that I wanted to mm -hmm. um, come up with for oil specifically. Yeah. Um, that basically in order to recover more oil from the ground, you have to be increasingly aggressive to, to the earth. Yeah. And then each, for each one of these oil, gas uh, and metals, I looked at the main dynamics so that in order to give, if possible, a, a, a better understanding of what's going on and why is there such a, an aggression being carried out on those indigenous populations. It's a very interesting and ongoing issue, isn't it? The particular one of indigenous people. Uh, because you have some situations where it's alleged this is a means of uh, making money that is not welfareist and doesn't make them dependent on the state when they're in situations of impecuniosity. At another level, it's seen as inimical to their spirituality, their cosmology, and yeah. their own history as conservers of land. Right? And there's a dynamic that oscillates, I think. Well, I probably let Al talk about it, but this right. is the main work of the Gaia Foundation, and especially these days, the emphasis is on the sacred sites mm -hmm. and how these are crucial to, uh, for the people to, uh, to, to keep their culture alive. And hence your anthropological background being yeah. relevant here, I guess. Yeah, so I, my brief story is that I was studying anthropology at university and right. at the same time writing for an indigenous news journal. Uh -huh. um, and that's actually how I came to Guy. I was writing a, uh, an article about uh, oil extraction in the Altai, um, uh, which is particularly relevant to this because Where's it's, the uh, Altai? it's in Russia. It's in Russia. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a plateau area, or the, the area I was writing about, um, which is also a, a sacred burial ground and range about thousands and thousands of years to the Pazirik peoples. It's a place where um, the, the shore people, amongst others, go to to do their ceremonies and rituals and mm -hmm. they're threatened by uh, a pipeline, um, a Gazprom pipeline. Uh, and that led me to Gaia through I was researching and I found that they've been doing work there and that and that fits into the to the work on sacred sites. Um, which I mean I, I'm no expert but Essentially, the, the, we call them sacred natural sites and territories. Sacred natural. Sacred. Sacred natural yeah. sites and territories. Yeah, so recognizing not just buildings. I was going to say sacred sounds like part of the body. No, no. <laughs> Which, sure. of course, is part of the metaphor, but anyway, mm. sacred natural. Yeah. Um, and these, with all of the communities that we work with um, through our partner organizations, mm. they have these spaces which are thought to be integral to um, managing or. or receiving law, uh, which then informs their governance systems and keeps them in balance with, with Earth's processes. Yeah. And it's a kind of, it's Earth law, we call it Earth jurisprudence, um, that they receive at these sites. And they also often tend to be points of particular ecological importance, so springs, waterfalls, uh, rivers, forests, and so on, which are integral in the local environment. And, and in a territory, you tend to have a number of these when they have a webbing up effect of almost becoming sort of points of acupuncture and power um, for, the, for the communities. And so a lot of our work at the moment is focusing on uh, making these areas, it's, a, it's not a term we like particularly, but no-go areas for extraction. Because they, as, as Philippe said, as the industry has become more ravenous, as, as the deposits become smaller, they're entering ever more fragile and, uh, territories, which include these indigenous territories, because they're seen as basically the weak link or the path of least resistance uh, for extractive industries within these political and legal representation. Um, so that it's certainly our work on indigenous peoples and, and mining is completely 
And how does that group respond to the might of Gazprom, for example? And of course, Gazprom is very involved with the Russian state. Probably more than, perhaps even more than Total was when Total was state owned in the sense of it being crucial to the entire Russian economy, basically. How do the indigenous peoples respond? How, how, do they, yeah, what, how do they respond to you and how do they respond to Gazprom? What is their attitude well, in, this, I, in this particular instance? Probably, I'm probably more qualified to speak about in, in Africa at the moment, because that's uh-huh. where we're working predominantly now. Um, but at the moment, it's largely the thrusts towards coalition building between yeah. communities and organisations so that they can increase their political presence and access to media and all the rest of it to build a case against uh, a company or, or, or state forces or whatever. Um, but it, obviously it's, it's extremely complicated. So I've just received this morning a video of um, a community that we know of and, and we've been speaking to in, in uh, Colombia, mm-hmm. in Tolima, where they one of their measures was to... Um, hold a local referendum on mining. Mm-hmm. Demographic process by which the community who was affected could, could voice their thing and they, and they came up with almost unanimous, 99% in this particular village said no. But because the Colombian government has made um, mining its national priority, they have, um, or a, a key strategic priority, uh, they own the subsoil. So this democratic process is essentially undermined by these. So... I think, I think one point that's really important is that mining companies recognise that if there is extreme community-based resistance, it's very, very difficult to start mining. They need their social licence to operate. Yes, call, exactly. And, and not only because of you can get, grab international attention, mm. but also because of the, the time-consuming, costly processes that they have to go through when a community kicks up a fuss. So mm. that sort of very much grassroots resistance is certainly something that we think is an effective strategy. And so you mentioned Colombia, you also mentioned Africa. Which parts of Africa are you guys focusing on? At the moment, um, it's South Africa, uh, where we're working with a group in uh, Limpopo, Bender, um, and that's coal mining. Uh, In Ghana, in the Upper West region, and that's gold mining. Uh, Uganda, which is in the Hoima region, which is oil. Uh, and also Ethiopia. And I'm not asking you guys, obviously, to disclose anything secret. All I want is the stuff that you are happy to have discussed. But I wonder and if you Kenya could... as well. And Kenya, <laughs> yeah. okay. And when, so you've got East, West, and South yeah. uh, pretty much uh, involved. In terms of what you can easily tell us, can you talk about some of the issues in terms of the campaigns? And again, this issue of, uh, if you like, the power of the state and the power of corporations versus... People power, power from below, or whatever. I'd love to know if you've got some stories or an example. My Well, very often the first, the first stage is actually for the communities to recognize their territory in the sense that, of course, they do recognize their territory, but in a pretty maybe informal way with regards to you know national laws. So that territory has been inherited through generations and they have lived there for countless times but can they show a proof of ownership? Mm -hmm. No they can't because that's not the way things work in Africa and very often one of the first job of the Foundation is to encourage what is called eco-mapping which is 
bringing the communities together in order to map out the territory and what are we talking about, and what are the different areas, what is the, where are the secret sites, uh, and, and engaging the communities in that, uh, in that work, I think, is essential, first of all, to strengthen that sense of community. And that mapping is not going to be the imperial and colonial mapping that was drawn up in the only 19th and 20th centuries to determine what was Belgian, what was French, what was German, and so on, and then what became post-colonial. It will be quite different, I imagine. It, it will be quite different, but we are talking also different scale, obviously. We, it's not to a, a country scale we're talking here. It's, it's small communities in different, different areas, but you're absolutely right. It, in, uh, it's nothing to do with administrative boundaries. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's cultural and spiritual boundaries. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's enmeshed in a, in a very long dialogue process by which you draw all elements of different communities together, elders and young people mm -hmm. and, and, and everyone in between to, to learn from each other. Um, and alongside the maps that Philippe is talking about, which they map past, present and future to give themselves a sense of moving through time and what's happened and what they want. We also do uh, eco-calendars, so they make eco-calendars. Uh, to exactly as you say, to deconstruct the idea of a, a 12 months of the year and actually show that their traditional activities are based on an ecological calendar of when does this happen, when does that happen, you know, when do the rains fall and, and how do the insects behave and when do we take the, the, the seed in and so on. Um, so it's really about yeah, regenerating people's confidence in, uh, in their own knowledge as well. And as Philippe says, that then when a threat comes in, you immediately have something to consult against because mm. so often when there's when this consultation social consultation happens between communities and mine companies it's the mine company saying what they're going to do and the community not knowing how to respond and so if they essentially have a mapping a document of their lives then they're able to present what they are and also say this will impact this this will impact that mm. and to build their case from that um, and Building on that again is, is is on the Earth jurisprudence side, which is doing doing legal support to help find, for example, elements of national law or the constitution which would recognise customary governance mm -hmm. and to use those as tools to, to engage with with uh, local government and government. Um, yeah. I think at this stage it's quite important maybe to emphasise what Gaia Foundation is about in the sense that it's really about helping people help themselves. It's not trying to impose you know, top-down methods or working approaches. And, and, and it's not being directive, it's about empowering people locally. Uh, so the consultation process is, is really essential in that sense, bringing the communities together. Sometimes communities living side by side don't necessarily, I'm not saying speak, but maybe exchange uh, as, as well as they could. So it's, it's trying to, to generate that uh, sense of community which already exists, but it, it's, it's a bottom-up approach, mm -hmm. and there is absolutely no, uh, no top-down approach from the right. Foundation. It's so really it's about empowering people on the ground. It's quite different from conventional development or a, I think as understood in the classic mm -hmm. post-1940s, yeah. post-50s sense. Well, our take is that they, all of the knowledge exists right. there. They have the knowledge. It's yeah. just that it's been buried under you know layers and layers of colonialism and undermining their confidence. Yeah. Um, but we're not saying that 
we're not saying that we have the solution, we're just you know, helping rebuild that confidence so that they can shape their own future. That's what the mapping's about. They can, they can move towards that, understanding the current context. So you have some resources that are valuable to them, potentially, and you have a, some kind of model, even though it's obviously flexible, that my right in thinking is meant to articulate between their knowledges and interests and conventional sovereign state knowledges and interests, things that will be recognized by courts or by corporations and enable a, another dialogue to happen between them and these powerful yeah. contemporary entities. Yeah. yeah. Is that yeah. roughly That's, that's the how we idea? support them. Yeah. A lot of it is yeah. the legal side of things, um, uh, but also you know, elevating uh, yeah. stories on a communications uh, level to, uh, to different you know, audiences that they might not have access to originally. But it's, it is, it's about capacity building, building, right. building their abilities do these things themselves. It's, it's also actually bringing, uh, building bridges between communities from different countries so that people in Limpopo in South Africa realize that what they are up against is actually some people in Ghana yeah. uh, facing the same struggle and people in South America as well. Um, so it's it's also trying to uh, to build that, uh, that sense of community at large. Not yeah. only the local community, mm -hmm. but the fact that other communities elsewhere are engaged in the same kind of struggle. Uh, well, which, in a sense, is, is a help because it shows that you are not alone, alone in that, you know, in that struggle. Uh, and then communities can exchange information and maybe approaches that have maybe been successful in that case. Yeah, for sure. So we have facilitated exchanges like that, and what Philippe described is kind of based on our. So a theory of change that we hold, mm. I suppose, which is um, called emergence. Emergence. Yeah, which is um, a theory advanced by Margaret Wheatley, um, and basically says that change doesn't happen. A real, meaningful, lasting change doesn't happen from initiatives imposed from the top down. It happens when different people, diffuse communities from all over the world or all over a, an area who don't necessarily have any contact come up against a similar set of circumstances and then their responses build and they grow and because they're because they have they've come at this right time and then eventually over time those things web up and then things can happen very quickly and the, the example that she gives is, is the falling of the Berlin Wall and nobody could have predicted that would happen because it's a much more diffuse process of change that's happened so connecting people is a very powerful way to create change and to give an example of what Philippe described of, of community sharing, um, we were recently contacted by that uh, community in um, in Piedras, uh, Lima in Colombia, uh, and to, to send a letter to the people of Balcom resisting fracking. And from this connection, uh, there then followed letters from the community there to our partners in Africa, so to South Africa and, and, and Ghana. Uh, to also to another community in Ghana um, and Alaska. So you can see the, the picture emerges. Yeah. So it's facilitating south-to-south communication yeah. in the sense of the global south, but yes. also places like in Britain or in Alaska where yeah. you're in the so-called first world or the global north, yeah. but again, fracking is being resisted by local yeah. communities in the interests of health, safety, spirituality, yeah. etc. I mean, in my other work in Africa, in Malawi particularly, I've seen it so often that charities would come with 
big four-wheel drive installer uh, a borehole and it's great for two years when the community then gets water and then after two years the borehole breaks down because it needs repair and it's something but then there is no sense of ownership because people just came one day to read the hole and left and communities are left to themselves and I think yeah. the KF Foundation is, is just at the other end of the spectrum of that approach. So it's building on what's happening organically and assisting people, yeah. learning from them a lot, yeah. it sounds like. Absolutely, and in fact, the foundation describes itself as a hub. It's, it's a hub. It's, it's mm. connecting people and empowering them. And one of the things you just said, how is that actually some of these groups reach out to you? It's not as though you identify the yeah, needy and no. then go and save them. No, that's exactly it. Yeah, no, no. That, um, you know, we obviously have we we call them affectionate alliances with our partners, established partners, um, which have emerged over time. But also these things come out of the blue, and then. You know, part of our role, as you say, is to, is to then to use our networks to, to create that, that webbing up effect. Um, and then, you know, you never know what's going to happen when you put one person in uh, one community in contact with another. It's, it's an incredibly energizing thing for any resistance movement. And has this changed? This would be probably a question more for people who are involved before you guys were since the internet in terms of the capacity for this south-to-south -south communication for connecting tribes around the place because it seems to me that it would have been inordinately difficult to do before the 21st century in terms of how they realistically could co communicate could correspond yeah but it, but obviously the model started before that yeah, but I think it's, it's, it's interesting because I think we live in a time now where internet is so much part of our life that we thought that nothing could happen before internet, <laughs> yeah. in a sense. Of course, there's things happen differently. Yes, you're right, there is access to, uh, to internet makes things much easier, it's easier to coordinate, it's, uh, in many respects. It's, uh, it facilitates dialogue and contacts, and uh, especially internationally, between yeah. different communities which are far, far from each other. But we don't have history there because HAL has been around for what, maybe two years? Yeah. Three years? And I was not involved with the Gaia Foundation before internet, so we can not speak from experience. But yeah. you know, but they have, we have um, way before my time. They they were. Um, sort of, we recognise that, that that's a wonderful place to connect. But as Philippe often uh, points out, and it's good to get the refresher all the time, is that you know that it's it's, a, it's a certain limitations on the way you can connect like that. So we, you know, because the way Gaia works is very deep, and it's and it's about like a, getting a deep understanding of mm. each other. Um, that that has to it has to exist for anybody to do good work with each other. I think um, we have facilitated African. Uh, young African leaders uh, taking trips to the Amazon um, and, and uh, also communities in Africa meeting up in Botswana on retreats and, and to be able to like like go really deep into the processes. Actually face to face. Yeah. Because uh, the techno-utopianism is always a problem I think. I just mean it makes it easier for people to make initial contacts and start yeah. to chat but of course yeah. actually being and you as an anthropologist are all about participant observation. Yeah. And, uh, not this isn't just observation, this is working together. It's action yeah. research. Yeah, absolutely. It's, com it's collaborative. Yeah. Yeah. So, what is the reaction, if you can generalise, on the part of governments to this? What do they tend to think about it? About the work we're doing specifically? Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, it's hard to it's hard to know really because we don't you know because we're, it's our partners who are doing the work on the ground, mm. um, not us. So much much better for you to ask them that question um, and and how they're how they're engaging with government particularly, but. Uh, we have one partner in, in, uh, in Ghana who have been coalition building there to communities um, and NGOs who started to recognise gold mining as a common threat to their, their sort of livelihood uh, of, of one kind or another. Um, and they have been engaging local government, and I know that they've had some favourable responses from there. But there is naturally anywhere there's a disconnect between local government and centralised government, and then you know centralised government is probably a disconnect between environmental uh, sort of agencies and, and mining and resource agencies. So I think it's a tangled web. So it'd be difficult. It would be difficult for me to generalise and say. Um, but certainly engagement is important. And in terms of your environmental agenda, which is obviously crucial to this along with an indigenous people's agenda, to the extent that I can distinguish them, they're obviously very closely linked. Uh, the extractive industries are kind of the enemy. They're the bad guys for you folks, right? Well, let's try not to uh, think in terms of black and white, but I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love to identify the enemy. Yeah. Uh, no, what I mean is that um, the extractive industries are, as you said, in a kind of crisis. Uh, you know, I used to live in Mexico, and one of the big issues there is, and the deep shore, deep sea search is a big part of that, yeah. is that they do have a constitution that makes oil the property of the people, and that has militated against the kind of exploration that is needed, uh, investment in exploration, to continue to reap the benefits. Uh, it meant that for decades they could have low tax and high delivery of state services because, you know, when I lived there, my electricity bill was essentially paid for by money from the oil industry. The government would pay almost all my electricity bills. Yeah. And gas is really cheap. Yeah. Uh, access to loans to buy cars is is easy. All sorts of things, right? So now they're trying to change all of that because the oil in the easy bits is running out. And so, in order to get Total, BP, Shell, Gazprom, whoever to invest in deep sea search, uh, they've got to allow those companies to have a piece of the action, a bigger piece of the action than before. So it was a massive shift, a massive change. And one of the issues for me when I think about that, and it's the same with Alaska, uh, where, as you know, every living human gets a $1,000 check each year from the government as a consequence of extraction of oil, that there is an emotional kind of structure of feeling of connectedness universally to the extractive industries. You know, there is resistance, but there's a lot of emotional investment too. Yes. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that issue. Not, not the idea that we all need these industries, because I think we can argue against that, but actually the way that they are, and you as somebody who used to work in Total must have experienced this too, they actually can be terribly important to people, not just financially. A sense of modernity, significance, even ownership. So I wondered about that other side to it. you know what I mean? I think yes. 
I sense several uh, issues in your in your question. Really, um, if we talk about indigenous people, even though they would talk about it much better than I would, but anything that is in the ground, on the ground, uh, is is part of their bodies. Almost. So anything you take from the ground is almost ripping them apart. So it's felt. Certainly, very emotionally in that sense, but it, I think it's also felt physically. Almost. <laughs> uh, so, for, for for people living in, in those circumstances, seeing from, from suddenly people coming to your territory and ripping things trees apart and, and digging the ground is is, is death, really. Uh, now, if you talk, like you said about Mexico and the fact that thanks to the oil money. Uh, Collectively, people enjoy some good advantages. It's probably, first of all, I would say it's probably a very good example of what can be done with oil money. But I would assume that in many countries, actually, the money that is generated through uh, extraction is not shared so widely. Um, but let's assume it is shared widely as it was in Mexico. Um, I think the other issue, obviously, is that whatever happens in your neighbor's garden, you know, it, it doesn't really uh, impact you as such, and you turn a blind eye but when it's in your own garden, and that's exactly the problem that we are going to face in the UK now, with, with, with fracking coming up, it's going to affect many, many different people. Outside their own garden. And, yeah. yeah. Could you maybe, let, why don't we move to that as a very interesting topic because it's something that people outside the UK who are the majority of listeners may not know much about. They'll know about fracking, but they won't necessarily know about what's going on here. Here in the UK? Yeah. Well, I think there was just a, a headline this morning in the in the paper actually about that and the fact that definitely the government, the current government is is, uh, is, is determined to to push that and uh, to, uh, to allow development of, of fracking in the UK. Obviously the, the, the bad press with Russia, the difficult relation with Russia these days, uh, in a sense give a justification for that because the UK, as the rest of Europe, is quite dependent upon Russian natural gas. And, and it's running out of its North Sea oil reserves. As well, British so the, yeah. there is some yeah. no easy argument to, uh, to push for fracking in the UK in the name of you know, in, in energetic independence. But I think the, uh, the issue is, do we actually need that natural gas in the first place? Is, is there no other way than you know, sucking the blood of the earth till there is nothing left. Yeah. Um, and that's actually that's a, re a, a subject that we uh, addressed in a second report that, uh, that, that we did at the Gaia Foundation, which was about looking at the life cycle of consumer items like a laptop or a smartphone and trying to understand at each stage in the cycle from birth to life to death. Uh, the terrible impact that it's having on the earth and therefore changing smartphone every 18 months is, is just pure madness yeah. and a lot of natural gas or the energy we are using is, is to feed that wasteful consumption yeah so instead of, of you know digging holes everywhere on the, in the in the ground shouldn't we in the first place ask do we need do we need these things because the way the argument works often is to say well we have to do these things so people will stay warm, so they'll have electricity, so they can get to work. 
But of course, vast amounts of this energy goes to the military, vast amounts goes to the kind of built-in obsolescence that you're <coughs> describing. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you, I think when I met you, Hal, you had a report yeah, uh, that the guy found out. Yeah, that's, so and that's the, the, um, the report that Philippe's talking about, the short circuit report. The short circuit report. Yeah, and is that available online? It is available online through yeah. the Gaia Foundation website, which is GaiaFoundation.org. Right. Um, and as Philippe says, and as you know, I think something to, to sort of cut through is now, in the situation we have, there are, and, and I understand what you're, what you're saying about people feeling know some kind of attachment or some sort of necessity to the extractive industries but we are facing an ecological bottom line yeah. uh, which is that we're, we're we've pushed ourselves beyond the limits of what our planet can sustain and so you know it's one of one of our uh, partners described it as um do you it's like feasting today to start tomorrow um, and, sure. and that's and, and looking at the trends of beliefs research, and also you know considering things in the in the big context of climate change, you know as 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 an environmental organi uh, organization mm. as well as an indigenous rights one, um, we have, we look at that and, and and say you know this you know you can't have an economy without an, without an ecology, you can't have anything without an ecology, yeah. and so that that kind of you know. It, it has to be figured in all of our No, reasoning. that's great. I absolutely agree. The reason I was thinking about the Mexican example, apart from because obviously I, I have an investment in it yeah. emotionally and intellectually myself, is that it's a highly unusual one in that the way they nationalized was that instead of just saying, Yankee, go home, we want yours, they got a national subscription going of very ordinary working people to buy out, pay damages, if you like, to foreign corporations. So everybody has a grandmother who sold the, the chickens she raised and gave the money to the state to buy, to nationalize oil. So that's a massive investment, emotionally, monetarily, genealogically, very unusual story. So today, when these attempts to liberalize the law, which is to denationalize the industry, are being made, one of the smart things that activists are doing is not denouncing the idea of national ownership, because that is to deride the personal histories that are terribly important of extremely poor, often peasant people, many indigenous or little part indigenous. But instead to say, obviously enough, let's talk about wind, let's talk about solar, let's put investment into that, uh, researching it, building it, harvesting it, and jobs that will flow there from. You know, that's very much the argument against the direction of the reforms. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that would probably be very in sync with what Gaia is, uh, is concerned to do. And jobs are, jobs are a big one. Um, uh -huh. it, ha it has to be said that I mean, the, most of the uh, communities that we're involved with, um, we're, we're in, they're in a position where mining hasn't happened yet. So it's, it's the, the methodology is preventative or, or it's in the exploration stage or something like that. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, then you're you're faced with a different a different set of challenges, which is mm. saying, um, well, if this happens, then this agricultural land that they 
rely on will be degraded or, or poisoned or whatever. Yeah. Um, rather than saying, well, now that the industry exists here, how do we cope and live with it or get rid of it or whatever? Mm-hmm. It's actually, it's like you're saying, now with the knowledge that we all have about the ecological situation mm-hmm. uh, and, and, these, and these groups who are yet to be, you know, their mind affected in as much as they're threatened by mining, but they're yet to be uh, completely undermined by it. How do, how do we how, does, how do we encounter that and how do we deal with that? Mm. Because I think it's a, it poses slightly different problems yeah. and requires mm. different methodologies. Now we've got about five minutes left, guys. I want to ask you a couple of questions, and again, if they're commercial in confidence, please feel free to say don't want to answer that. But I'm just interested in terms of, for example, getting legal advice to assist different communities. Is that pro bono work that is? that law firms just offer, or do you hire people? How does that work, do you know? Um, what I can say is that some of the uh, some of the trainings um, that we're helping facilitate and do yeah. is about um, creating or helping train barefoot uh, jurisprudence lawyers. So these are basically, our, the ideal situation yeah. according to principles that um, Philippe described is to have people who understand who are from the communities uh-huh. who are able yeah. to to articulate law from a community perspective but with an understanding also of the international and national context they're oh, working within. Oh, so that's yeah. so that's one of our you know that's yeah. one of that's one yeah. Yeah. Uh, method which I think is probably the most significant work that we're doing. And I also mm. have a colleague who uh, at Gaia who is an earth jurisprudence lawyer and she does an awful lot of good work uh, with like working with our, our partners on right. that. And um, in terms of where you're located, Gaia is in, I mean obviously conceptually it's everywhere, but uh, judging from your website you actually have employees in different parts of the world, right? Yes, uh, but they, they, yeah, so um, we're based in, uh, in Hampstead, but they, there are people working remotely, so for example, uh, we have one one colleague who lives permanently in Uruguay, mm. um, one who's living in Argentina at present. Um, our director is back and forth between here and South Africa, so then uh, that has its advantages because a guy with its roots in um, South America, having somebody who works for the Gaia Foundation there is, uh, helps to keep those connections alive. Yeah, that's marvellous. That's actually fantastic. And um, do you involve volunteers at all? What is the role that a person listening to this could play if they were interested in the Gaia Foundation? What's something that they could do if they were in Denmark or Colombia? I actually have quite a few listeners in Colombia. I, I, sorry, this podcast has quite a few listeners in Colombia. What, what can they do practically if they want to get involved? I mean, they can visit your website, see the report. Um, well, we have quite a, quite a small team, so our capacity, we don't run volunteer programs mm-hmm. um, or anything like that just because of the logistics of doing sure. it. And, um, but what, what I think from my perspective working on the campaigns and the communications is always really important. When you present someone with a huge problem is is there has to be there has to be, you know, you know action that they can that they can take because, you know, there are actions and if you don't if you don't Mm. To people, then they just feel disempowered by the whole whole experience mm. of learning. Mm. Um, so, I, what I would encourage now, which is relevant to our conversation and campaign, 
is um, if you go to our website and there is a pledge you can sign through the wake up call animation which is on the homepage, big black box with wake up call written in it mm -hmm. um, and that's a pledge to stand in solidarity with uh, mine affected communities um, and that will, that's a campaign that's growing and people will be able to get much more involved with due course uh, but by, by adding your name you become part of that campaign and we'll be keeping everyone updated and give them ways to get involved because it's it's also it's about connecting south to south but as as we all know you know it, it is effective to have people from everywhere supporting you know everybody else oh especially so, when so many of these corporations are based in the north yeah yeah and they, they yes it just you know it just shows shows that people are aware people are watching so is there anything else either of you would like to add that we haven't covered should be oh i'm sure we haven't covered many things <laughs> but no it was it was great to uh, to have you around and yeah. able to talk to you yeah. well thank yeah. you both because it's a very inspirational organization uh, since i met you how i've read the report and obviously seen this animation that you're describing yeah. and looked at the website learned a little bit about the foundation i've been very driven by it and thinking about it a lot and uh, i think that this work with combining a critique of the extractive industries with a respect for and a learning from the cosmology of indigenous peoples of first peoples really is crucial the things have to be put together i of course would add in critique of multinational capitalism um, but lots of lots of charities can't afford to say that because then they lose <laughs> support yeah but th th there's no doubt that the growth ethos uh, doesn't work and I think you put it well with a couple of the descriptions you gave uh, a about the contradictions that growth in conventional senses poses for indigenous cosmology but B in terms of economy and ecology are linked they're not antithetical they don't have to be separate and there is a sensible way of allocating the resources that we all need yeah. and what we've pursued is a senseless way that's the message i take away from talking yeah, and, and, and i think it's 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 more than just supporting a few communities i think it's also very symbolic because it's recognizing that we have something to learn from people who are living this way and it's even more important to protect them uh, and because they have, they have something to teach us. Yeah. So it, there is a very, um, I call it a symbolic, although it might be uh, misconstrued, it's 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 very important message, I think, and it's, it's very important to uh, do everything we can to support people who have been living this way for millennia because they have something to teach us. Yeah. And now is the time to hear them. That's beautifully put. Thank yeah. you both very much. And I hope that perhaps when this big campaign that people can sign up for is really in full flight, you and perhaps your colleagues will come back to the pod and share your experiences. That would be our pleasure. Okay. Great, thanks. Thank you very, very much.